Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 225. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week, Trifecta Special 19. Three writers, three stories, three storytellers, all based on some theme. The theme of this week's Trifecta, Fairy Tale Child Abduction. Rapunzel, Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood. So often fairy tales in their original form end darkly, with anything but a happily ever after for the children involved. But how could they not? Honestly, kids, if it takes you more than two seconds to realize that a talking wolf in drag isn't your grandmother, things are probably not destined to end for you nicely anyways. Kids are kids, though. They don't know any better. Their primary means of navigating dense terrain is via breadcrumb, and consistently they gorge themselves on gingerbread dwellings with little to no regard for the cannibalistic hags possibly residing within. As if the old crones don't have enough on their plates already, what with all the water damage that probably comes with living in a domicile made entirely of cake. What happens to lost children? Fallen prey to wolves or the elderly? Kidnapped by an overly sexualized David Bowie. You remind me of the babe. Babe with the power. You can't help but look at all those missing children on the backs of milk cartons and wonder to yourself, wouldn't we find more of these kids if we put their pictures on 40-ounce malt liquor bottles? I'm just saying, milk? Why milk? Daddy, why is my picture on this milk carton? Uh, son, I have something to tell you. You were adopted from a dairy farm. Yeah, even soy milk, which is where, of course, all the missing hipster kids wind up. Have you seen me? Django Starfetus von Kerouac, last seen getting into a Toyota Prius. Fairy tales to dairy tales, we can still only speculate what happens to rambunctious children that decide to stray too far into the woods. This week we bring you three dark fairy tales, David is Six by Amanda C. Davis, The Best Boy, The Brightest Boy by Megan Engelhart, and Broken by Stephen Sauce. Joining me in the narration of these stories this week is Carly Bales and Ken Jordan, two fine, talented actors and friends of mine from a Baltimore-based group which I love dearly, called the EMP Collective. The EMP is a non-profit mixed media arts organization uniting artists, musicians, writers, filmmakers, actors, and like-minded friends from across the country to create new things that kick ass. They just got a grant that allowed them to open up a space in downtown Baltimore and have been hosting everything from writing workshops to film series to visual art shows to theatrical and multimedia performances. To find out more about the collective and perhaps be assimilated, check them out at empcollective.org. First off, David is Six by Amanda C. Davis. Amanda is an engineer with a green thumb, a growing collection of comic books, and a deep love for horror movies. Her works appeared in Shock Totem, Red Stone Science Fiction, and Daily Science Fiction, among others. You can follow her on Twitter at DavisAC1 or learn more about her at AmandaCDavis.com. So without further ado, David is Six 
by Amanda C. Davis. David is six and cannot wait to be seven. Seven will be a spectacular change in his fortunes, an incredible leap in status. Seven takes much longer to say than six. At six, people sometimes still ask if he's in kindergarten. But at seven, they will know that he has ascended to grade school proper. He will no longer have to assert that he is a big boy. At seven, big boyhood is assured. David is so anxious to be seven that he has wet the bed twice this week, an occurrence he is certain he will stop as soon as he has his birthday. His birthday is in May. He still has three more months to go. The day is marshy and cold, but clear. Unexpected sun has melted off the February snow, leaving dead brown February fields exposed. David is wearing his snowsuit, and over that, an exuberant camouflage of mud. He has spent the morning tromping through the overgrowth of his backyard, a vast and compelling tangle of half-cleared forest with a creek, a high-wooded hill, and a rocky lowlands where the rainwater runs off, bringing crushed cans and torn plastic bags to his eager mittened hands. His father isn't too far off. He is chopping wood. David expects that when he is seven, he'll be allowed to try chopping wood too. He wanders towards the creek, through the most difficult path possible. His boots get stuck repeatedly. Old mud and decaying grass pull hard at his feet. He pretends he is much farther away from home than he really is. He splishes and crunches up to the creek bed. It runs high now, fat with melted snow. He crashes through the last dry bushes to the creek and stops. An old log has fallen across the stream at a shallow point. There is a mist over the old log, and there is a rainbow in the mist. And there is a toad sitting in the rainbow, right where it ends. David knows it's a toad because it looks like a frog, only uglier. But it looks like the kind of toad that can talk, not the kind he usually catches in the creek. It's large though not quite as large as a teddy bear, and its arms and legs are straight like a person's. The bark around it is bright with rainbow color, but the toad stays persistently brown. A primal certainty rises in David's chest. He will never be happy, never be truly satisfied with himself until he has captured that toad in his hands. The toad's size marks it innately as prey. Its inattentiveness marks it as irresistible. The toad is humming in a weird voice that seems just right for it. It is gazing at the mountain. David holds his breath. He slips from the underbrush, how quietly he can move when he must, and gently, gently tiptoes into the rippling creek bed. The water sweeps the mud from his boots. He stretches forth his arms. His snowsuit hisses at the armpits. The toad does not seem to notice. David creeps closer as close as he dares, and then pounces like a cat. And he is a warrior, he is victorious, he has the toad in his hands. They look at one another, boy and toad. Goodness me, the toad says. What a clever boy. Why, you've caught me. David agrees that he's clever. He is too clever to let go, even under the application of flattery. 
I knew you could talk. Then you'll be wanting your wish, I suppose. David hadn't expected that, but it comes as no surprise. With a rainbow splashing before him and a talking frog in his hands, and the sound of his father's axe dull and rhythmic in the distance. Clearly, if wishes can be granted, and David knows they can, they are granted in places like this, at times like now. And just one wish has been pulsing in his chest all winter long. I want to be seven, says David. <clears throat> wish, the toad corrects him gently. I wish to be seven. The toad opens its mouth to speak, but it stops before the words come out. It tilts its strange head wide. Oh my, says the toad. Oh dear. <laughs> Did you say you were only six? I'm seven in three months, says David. He says it angrily because he's embarrassed by it. Mm, but how dreadful, says the toad. I'm so sorry. I can't grant a wish to anyone younger than seven. It shakes its head, a strange thing to see a toad do. Mm, it's the rules. David, at six, is painfully aware of the ways of rules. But that's not fair. A terrible injustice, the toad agrees. Too bad. Such a shame. Although I suppose I could... Oh, no, I, I couldn't forget I said anything. David turns shrewd. What? Nothing. Nothing at all, says the toad. Or whatever it is, the longer David looks, the less it looks like a toad, and the more it resembles a small, ugly person. I mean, you would never agree to it anyway. What? The toad sighs, long and regretful. As I said, I can't grant your wish. I have rules. But you did catch me, so you do deserve a wish, don't you? And I only thought, well, I can't grant you a wish, but perhaps my queen might. This startles David. Wishes and toads are one thing, but that toads might have queens is beyond his experience. He says, oh, if you let me go and get her, the no is swift out of David's mouth. He's no fool. No, bring her here. But I have no way to call her, says the toad, going sad-eyed at its own helplessness. Its eyes brighten. I suppose you could take me to see her. Take you where, says David. Why, under the hill, of course. David hesitates. The hill behind the creek looms high overhead, its steep sides tangled in dead blackberry bushes, wild baby sycamores, and jutting boulders. He wants to climb it someday, but has never been able to get very far. The trees are too far apart for his short arms. Besides, every so often people see black bears up there. He never knew there was anything under it. Mm. I thought you might not like the idea, said the toad person. The prospect must be terribly frightening for a six-year-old. David raises his chin. I don't believe you. 
Then have a look, says the toad. It raises one hand. How did its arm get free when David is holding it so tightly? And gestures grandly. Just beyond the opposite bank, where the hill begins to rise, the tangled growth twists. It crackles and slides, and before David is quite sure what he is seeing, a small, clean door, just large enough for a six-year-old boy, has emerged from under the brush. It swings open on an unseen hinge. The space behind it glows golden. For a moment, David nearly forgets to hold on to the toad, but though his grip loosens, the toad makes no move to run. Why don't we go pay the queen a visit? The day is so cold, the sound of his father's axe so faint. The rainbow is gone, and because the glow is like nothing David has ever seen, and because he can faintly hear the songs of children and bells, and because something seems so warm inside that door, so much brighter than the dim, cold murk of the February afternoon, David mouths, okay, and carries the toad to the door in the hill, and he creeps inside, nose and ears and eyes filled with the promise of the underground city where the queen of toads grants wishes. The door closes tightly behind them. It does not open again. David is six, and he has been six for quite a while. The toads under the hill tell them that he will be seven someday, but never today, never quite tomorrow. And David will sit at his queen's side, hoping to become seven for a very long time to come. Poor David. Having patience is tough. I bought this house plant a couple weeks ago. It's taken freaking forever to turn into a house. Next up, The Best Boy, The Brightest Boy by Megan Engelhart. Megan's a lapsed librarian and displaced farm girl who lives in Ohio in a crooked little house. She's been published in Necrotic Tissue, Cross Genres, and Silver Blade, and can be found online at meganengelhart.com and on Twitter at MadMaryMeg. So listen up, kids. The Piper is piping. We bring you The Best Boy, The Brightest Boy by Megan Engelhart. Once, at the beginning, you asked me why you were brought here. This is what I told you. Your parents, your town, made a deal. I would rid them of their plague of rats, and they would pay me. I cleared the town of pests, easily done, and returned for my payment. They laughed at me and tried to send me on my way with far, far less than they promised. Money is not important. Deals are. That is why I took you. One hundred and thirty children I led from the town, across the bridge the villagers named Death of Pests, across the fields all chewed and fallow, into the mountains that closed behind us with a snap like the jaws of a good rat terrier. 
And you were there, my last boy, the least boy, the leaping boy who danced and twirled with the others in your magic ecstasy. That is where the story ends, with the mountains closed and the town waking in weeping and sorrow. That is where their story ends, with no rats and no children and no future. But that is where our story starts, child, in the halls of the underground king, in my home of cobwebs and chimes. Chimes, always chimes. We played our games, do you remember? Fun games, games of running and hiding and choices and death. Oh, what games we played. Recall, sweet child, the shouts and cries in the tunnels and catacombs. Gleeful cacophony echoing back and forth, day and night, night and forever. Sweet hymns to my ears. 130 children I took into my maze, into my playground of red dirt and bones left to rot in the dark. Five crawled out again. One carried another in his arms. Pity has no place in my palace of pain. I killed them where they stood. One crept into my room as I slept and tried to steal my magic pipe. He burned, flames from the wards of protection creeping into his eyes. One tried to charm me, the beautiful little winch, but I am uncharmable. I am the charmer of stars and worlds and rats and children, and she was clumsy and young, and when I kissed her forehead, she shrieked and fell and fell and fell and died from the fall that I placed into her mind. And then there was one. Did I not take you in my arms and tend to your wounds? Did I not taste your ensorcelled blood? Did I not reach into your chest with my music, my magic, and burn on your heart the runes that claimed you as my own? Did I not name you Piper's Boy, heir under the mountain, victor of the maze? Did I not make you my son? Your past life, gone. Your brothers and sisters, dead. Your town, left with only the stigma of greed as a fairy tale moral. I was all you had. I, the musical mage, the maledict merchant. I was your father and mother and master and friend, and you learned to love me. I taught you the way of the music, as I was once taught, in my infancy, in the caves of the dead, by brave, foolish, love-struck Orpheus. I wove the spells around you as they had been woven around me by a beautiful white kitsune, nine tails flowing around me like snow, spells of protection, of long life, of shrewdness. I taught you the magic of calling, of binding, of controlling. You followed me, small child, smart child, savvy child, down the tunnels and through the mountains and into the other worlds where I taught you how to ply my hour trade. Did I not clothe you in the colors of the rainbow, my bright boy, my best boy, my bang on the drum boy? You knew the truth of the magic lay in the beat more than the music, the rhythm that pounds in their hearts and souls and blood. I played my pipe, but the pipe is not magic itself. When we toured the mystical goblin markets of the Summerlands, you beat the drum and gathered swarms of pixies, bands of banshees, gobs and orcs and redcaps and nixes. Do you remember, Piper's boy, my boy, how sad you were when the fair folk ignored your drum and turned you away from their doors? 
I told you not to worry. The good ones know me and my piping well. They are beyond our power, and none has ever followed the calling of the piper. But goblins are easy, and pixies will follow anyone who favors them with a smile and a laugh. Even then, you had both, my joyful, powerful child. You smiled and laughed when the magic danced through your bones. I smiled with you, for I knew how it felt, the red-hot power of the calling curse pounding in your veins. I was so proud of you that day, my good son, when you drowned the pixies in the rivers of molten blood that flow through our kingdom and lured the goblins into fields of prickly vines that ate their green skin in strips. And you smiled and smiled and laughed at their screams, and you were then the true heir under the mountain. Such years we had together, piper and son, drummer and father. We picked our targets well. Those who would not pay the price we asked, the centers of greed and hubris in the human world. Oh, what rivers of blood we drew from men and beasts. The pain we caused, the treasures we took, they called us plagues, they called us crusades, they called us sickness and abduction. Never could they catch us, and never did they learn their lessons. And we obeyed the rules, did we not, obedient child? For there are rules. We cannot break the deal. We cannot refuse the payment. We cannot play our fiercest tunes where loyalty, honesty, lawfulness live. But lucky us, man never keeps his word. Man never pays his fees. When they broke the deals, we took what we wanted. Your desires were powerful and foreign to me. I wanted nothing more than revenge, than justice, and once in a while to play in my maze. But you wanted more, my human child, my hungry child, my happy, grinning, deadly child. You chose playmates from your wages, brought them to the maze, ran them around and around like mice with missing tails. When you caught them, they sang like nothing ever before had sung under the mountain. I hunt rarely, once in a hundred years or more, but you left often. Fifty years between, twenty years between, five years between. You brought back more. Ten children, thirty children, one hundred children. You threatened the sanctuary of the world under the mountain. I loved you, child of Hamelin, child of hunting, child of harm, but no magic could bind you. You had taken too many of my charms from me. I cast you out. Oh, woe and darkness under the mountain. I raged for days, years, generations at the loss, for you had been my pride and joy, my malicious son my macabre son, my missing son. You begged to stay, of course. You wished to stay with your maze and your playmates, but under the mountain is still my place of power. You borrowed and stolen magic could not oppose me there. The darkness welcomed you when I opened up the mountain and banished you away. I watch you sometimes. You beat your drum still, on stages small and large. They love you, you know. 
They follow you, and you catch them just as you always did. You took the magic from me and put it into the music you learned, and then you gave it a name. When you named it, I knew you had not forgotten me. For what else would you have been thinking of when you named your musical trap? Clear in your mind were the mountains that moved to bring you into your once kingdom. When they scream the words of your songs, loving you and your music magic even as you kill them, they pay homage to me and my pipe and the rocks that rolled away to trap the children of Hamelin. I made you my raw star, my raging star, you and your rock and roll magic. So that's where rock and roll came from, huh? Strangers have the best candy. Just remember kids, they say you should only trust someone as far as you can throw them. That's why I trust the hell out of babies. Finally, we bring you Broken by Stephen Sauce. Stephen injects people with radioactivity at his day job, but only to serve the forces of good. His works appeared in print in the anthologies Westward Weird, forthcoming, Mages and Magic, Timeshares, and Hungry for Your Love, and in several magazines both online and off, including On Spec, Andromeda Spaceways In-Flight Magazine, and the SFWA Bulletin. He also provides publishing services and publishes books such as the Crimson Pact series of dark fantasy anthologies and Don Bingle's spy thriller Net Impact at Alliteration Inc. You can find him at stephensauce.com and alliterationinc.com. Stephen's running a charity and writing competition through the end of the year called Spec the Halls, a contest for speculative winter holiday-themed fiction and poetry. It's cool. Check it out at specthehalls.com. So again, without further ado, we bring you Broken by Stephen Sauce. The fairy that stood over my son's crib wore the same color blue as his doll. The doll, Pinocchio's blue fairy, had gossamer butterfly wings, a shimmering blue dress, and an innocent smile on its plump face as it fell from my hands toward the carpeted floor. The real fairy's dress was woven of blue bonnets and severed bluebird wings. I smelled the sour penny stink of bird blood dripping from freshly torn shoulder joints. Her wings flared back in surprise. Gibbous moonlight shining through the window lit her leathery pale flesh. Her hiss slid between narrow teeth and the flaring nostrils in her too thin nose. The sound roused the child, not my son, in her anorexic arms. That child's head lolled towards me. Do we need to kill it, mother? It asked. My spine smacked into the doorframe, stopping my instinctual retreat a second before the guilt did. Later, I would reassure myself that a second, only a second of pure panic passed before I remembered that my son was still in his crib 
He was too young for bats or baseballs to be within easy reach. Everything was padded and safe. Susan's gliding chair and the changing table were too far away. Susan was not home, was not able to rescue me. She wouldn't believe me if I called, wouldn't be able to accept the situation any more than I. I snatched the stuffed fairy and held it up as a tiny defense. No, the fairy said. She stroked her child's cheek, her voice smooth and deep. I felt her words slip across my skin. No, she repeated. He has seen us. Whether we like it or not, there are rules. What rules? My throat was strangling itself. Whose rules? The angles of her face aligned to face me. That is not for you to know. Just that there are rules. Just know that now you must choose. Her eyes followed mine, an uncomfortable reminder of childhood staring games. I looked away, and her eyes were still staring into mine. I looked to the other side, and she was closer, still in front of me. My heartbeat thrumped faster through my neck. I closed my eyes to stop her stare. An unnatural scent of jasmine forced its way into my nose, and I opened my eyes again. She was not the skeletal thing I had seen before. Now she filled a gown of gossamer and lace, ringlets of hair cascading over her cocoa skin to the shimmering butterfly wings on her back. The cherub in her arms cooed and giggled. Maybe I just imagined something more behind its eyes. You know he is ill. She had not been asking, and I wished she hadn't. I had taken up drinking to blur memories of dour doctors and lab coats, assessing my son's mental ability. The liquor helped me forget the dismal predictions, sugared with euphemisms, for my son's limited life. Last week, he had reached a new developmental milestone. I'd almost been able to ignore that it had come eight months too late. The fairy's voice would not permit anything other than hard, clear memories. I want him. The fairy's words echoed Susan's after the first test suggested something was wrong. The words that were at the very heart of every terrifying fight Susan and I had over the life her son would lead. I will trade you a child for a child. Her infant giggled in her arms, then cackled until her glare silenced it. The infant's features slid into the shape of my son's face. Perhaps she saw the confusion, the questions on my own face. She kept talking, her words flowing in a warm stream. My son's afflictions will not affect you, but would make his life difficult with me. Your son's liabilities are benefits in my world. He will be safe and have a far richer life with me than you can possibly provide for him. My son had not stirred in his crib. His sound sleeping was one blessing amidst the chaos that had taken over since he was born. Susan had already called twice during her movie. The second time I'd heard Jackie in the background telling her to quit worrying. I sank into Susan's rocker, feeling how hours in the nursery had shaped the chair's cushion to the contour of her hips. 
I closed my eyes again and wondered how long the stink of jasmine would stay in the room. Yesterday, Susan had sat here nursing while we argued. We both wanted the best for him, but it had turned vicious. I tried to explain the reality of the situation, that there were places that could help. Susan would not believe it. She'd finally hissed at me over his head. No, Holmes, not ever. He's mine. Outside, the moonlight faded as a cloud passed. She shimmered and dimmed as the moonlight did, looking back at the window. I glanced at my watch and wondered if I really heard a car pulling up outside. My tongue stayed glued down in my dry mouth. The fairy continued, Why are you waiting? You can have a healthy child, my child, in return for yours. The memory of that first appointment was always close. Dr. Hill said the normal condolences, uttered all the banalities they must teach at medical school. I could see Dr. Hill's eyes. I knew what the words meant, even if Susan could not accept them. My son would never play. He would never make friends. If we were lucky, he might learn to walk. Another cloud passed before the moon. In the brief moment that she faded, I saw the window through her saw the cold front moving in. You have to decide. She was looking at her child, not me. Was she scared? I started at the sound of the front door. I took a breath of jasmine-scented air and answered the fairy. Ten years after that night, David is doing long division and hates it. He tests above average intelligence and does both soccer and karate. Some days he has physical therapy, and some days he has the other kind. Sometimes people tell me that David isn't quite normal. I tell them that I know. And that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed it. Some things do turn out all right in the end after all, even if it's hard to see that from your current vantage point. Ten years ago, if you'd told me I'd one day have a weekly podcast with thousands of listeners, I'd have killed you for being a robot from the future. All right, so here's something. A shout out to our official Drabblecast listener of the beast, Jonathan Valentine. Wait, what? What's going on? What's old Uncle Norm noising up my ears with? Well, folks, we trotted out a contest on the Drabblecast Facebook page a couple weeks back, and you're hearing the winner. The Drabblecast Facebook page is online at facebook.com slash Drabblecast, or accessible via the like button located on Drabblecast.org. It's another great place to get the latest in Drabblecast news, and somewhere that will be running micro-contests of this sort from time to time. Rankled? You're saying, but Norm, I listen to the podcast, I love the sound of my own name, but hell, I don't want to surrender my personal information to that Mark Zucchiniberg fella. I mean, if anyone's an evil child-abducting fairy, it's probably that guy, right? Why do I want him knowing my birth date, seeing my drunk pictures, and assessing my scrabble aptitude and pretend farming skills? Grumble, grouse, guff. 
Well, unwrinkle yourself, my little raging star. You've listened your way right into our next contest, and what a carrot we have to dangle. Between today and December 21st, you have the opportunity to become part of Drabblecast history. Hell, a part of literary history. We've commissioned another holiday special from short fiction wizard and object of desire, Tim Pratt. If you connect with the Drabblecast in any number of ways in the next three weeks, you stand to be randomly selected as a namesake for a character in Tim's next story on the Drabblecast. Like the Drabblecast Facebook page, comment on a post, use our discussion forums, tweet us, retweet us, pre-order my new CD on Kickstarter, link to Drabblecast.org in your blog. The wicked, crusty, floating eye at the top of the Drabblecast pyramid sees all. You may say vague, we say inclusive. Either way, very real, hopefully very exciting for you. More information will be on the Drabblecast forums, aka forums.drabblecast.org, also linked off our site, drabblecast.org. Peep that, and there's no way you can stay unclear or unexcited. Still rankled? Get a colonic. Find a link to Kendall's dad in our show notes. Oh yes, you heard me mention Kickstarter, which I'm using to raise funds in order to crank out my next CD. Getting close to that goal, folks. Take advantage of the awesome donor incentives there, like... Signed CDs, blown up fancy CD artwork, frenzied lunatic scribblings from my songwriting notebook, kickstarter.com. Do a quick search for Norm Sherman, you'll see it. The Esoteric Order of Sherman, due out this month with your support. Alright, enough jibba-jabba. On to this week's Twabble winner, 100-character story savant Christopher Monroe, aka Munzee, with this in right here. Jesus Christ, Mary yelled when she saw the muddy sandal prints across the living room. What were you, born in a barn? Love it. Follow Chris for more brilliant bits at Munzee Munzee, or follow us at The Drabblecast for the weekly 100-character story winner early each week. All right, folks, that's our show. Remember, Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to our kick-ass artist this week, Steve Santiago. Steve's a graphic designer and freelance illustrator that lives in the middle of California and is known at work as the manipulating guru for his Photoshop skills. His early influences came from watching cartoons like the original Johnny Quest and hoarding comic books with his brother. He plans to continue his fascination for the strange and macabre by expressing it through his art. A gallery of his work can be found at quest007.deviantarts.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you kids, the space behind the unseen door glows golden.